0: All right, uh, let's kind of continue tonight our new series in the life and discussions of Peter. Maybe we won't. Dude, this isn't working. Tim. Oh, there it goes. Is that me or are y'all doing it? Am I doing it or are you doing it? You're doing it? Is there a... Uh, is there another way to fix it? Here's what we do whenever stuff like this happens. We know the Lord is up to something great because technology can be distracting, but also be awesome. Is it just not working? Okay. Well, is someone going to follow along with me? Okay. Excellent. Then, uh, well, we'll go ahead and get started. Let's go ahead and pray. And ask the Lord to be present among us tonight as we uh, encounter his word. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is inspired and that it reveals to us the character and nature of who you are. God, we further thank you that it's by this word that your Holy Spirit interacts with our spirit and fashions us and shapes us into the image of Jesus. And Father, right now we come before you offering everything we have. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come down upon us. In fact, where you are, if you just pray the Holy Spirit to clear your mind. Help him, and ask him to help you focus upon the word of God. That you'd be open and receptive to whatever he has to say to you tonight. And pray for me, as I teach the word tonight, that i be faithful to represent Christ and the word of God well. Father, as always, this time is yours. Our attention, our devotion, our humility, our brokenness is our act of worship to you. As always, may you increase and I decrease, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, tonight we're going to look at a man um, who is being transformed, a man who is the friend of Jesus, who is restored and then reborn. Last week, we talked about the fact that Peter was both a man of faith and a man of failure, a man of great faith, the faith that formed the foundation of the church. Jesus says to him, upon your profession of faith, the confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church. And at the same time, that same man who exhibited such great faith also exhibited great failure. Stepping out, and one foot on the water, walking with Jesus on the water. And the next second sinking because of fear about the coming storm. Confessing Jesus is the Christ and then denying him three times to servant girls and people who literally had no um, ability to take his life. Yet, he denies Christ. And so tonight I want you to see how Jesus responds to the man of faith and failure that is Peter. And we must remember this overarching truth as we encounter the Word of God tonight. The goal of Christianity is restoration. The goal of Christianity is restoration. And that is because Christianity is a religion of grace. A religion of grace. That you and I receive things from God that you and I do not deserve. Has anyone in here ever received grace in your life? Someone that did not do something to you that you deserved or you received something from someone that you did not deserve. In fact, you deserved quite the opposite. My favorite story to tell about this is about my best friend. His name is Travis. And he and his father had this agreement that if Travis ever said a curse word, that his dad would wash his mouth out with soap. And one day in junior high, in a rebellious moment, Travis let out a curse word. Big time. And his dad was a pastor. And so he knew what was coming. And so Brother Lewis grabbed Travis's arm and started taking him to the bathroom to wash his mouth out with soap. Travis all the time trembling, knowing what was coming, expecting the bitter taste of soap in his mouth. And just at the moment, as Brother Lewis picked up that bar of soap and went to put it in Travis's mouth, he turned his hand around and put the soap in his own mouth. And began to wash out his mouth with soap. And he said, son, you deserved this, but I'm taking it for you. I can't think of a better picture of what it means to receive the grace of Jesus Christ upon our life. What we deserved, Christ took upon himself. And that is the cornerstone of what we believe as Christians Of course, you and I say time and time again that our salvation is not by anything that we have done. It's not earned by our own works. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace is the cornerstone of Christianity. And because of that, we are a religion of restoration. You and I are continually being remade and renewed. Not because of what we have done. Not because of anything that we deserve. But precisely because of the grace that is given to us by Jesus Christ. And Jesus exemplifies this grace that leads to restoration tonight in our passage in John chapter 21. So if you turn there with me to John 21, we're going to read verses 15 to 19. This is after, of course, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he encounters Peter for the first time. Peter, having denied Jesus three times, of course, feels ashamed and embarrassed. But look how Jesus interacts with Peter, beginning in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, notice Jesus is sitting down to a meal with him. Doesn't hold it so much against him that he refuses to even break bread with him. No, he sits down to eat with Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him this third time, Do you love me? Jesus predicted and then carried out the prediction by denying Jesus Christ three times. Jesus looks in the face, looks him directly in the eye, and he restores him. Peter denies Jesus three times, and Jesus looks him in the eye and gives him the opportunity to undo what he said to Jesus' face three times. Jesus could have held This against Peter. Deservedly so. Right? Think about where Jesus is at this point. Having been crucified. And then two of the people that he walked with. Invited into his inner circle. One betrays him. And the other denies him for fear of losing his own life. After he himself had just given up his own life for them. There's this old country music song that asks the question. Did I shave my legs this. That's got to be what Pete, Jesus is thinking in his mind. Not that he shaved his legs. I'm pretty sure he didn't shave his legs. If he was a girl, he should have, because all girls should shave their legs. Side note for free, okay? All right. So, but he's got to be thinking look at what I left. Look at what I gave up. I did not account equality with God something to be grasped. I left the beauty of heaven and came down into this nastiness, to save you, to rescue you from your sin. In an act of grace, something you did not deserve. And here's how I'm treated. One of the closest people to me betrays me. The people I came to save nail me up on a cross, stab me, spit on me, beat me. And one of the three that I'm closest to denies having even known me to a little girl. Jesus had every right to be upset, every right to hold this against Peter. But what does he do? He looks him in the face and says, Peter, make it up to me. I know your heart. I know that you do not believe what you said. I know you made a mistake. I know you failed. But here I am to exhibit to you grace again. Because my grace is infinite. You can't use it up. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Again, we see Jesus acting as often he does in the complete opposite manner of what we would expect. After restoring him, Jesus, once again, issues the same call to Peter he used at the beginning of our story. Follow me. Come. I will make you to become fishers of men. I forgive you. I'm showing grace to you. I'm restoring you. Now come again and follow me. Now, what is Jesus teaching us and Peter through this act of incomprehensible grace. Ultimately, we have to recognize this, that we are a collection of imperfect people who fail. The church is not composed of perfect people. It is composed of imperfect people, and imperfect people fail. All of us do. And you remember our studies in the Old Testament. Even the greatest leaders of the people of God in the Old Testament, as great as some of them were, time and time again, they revealed their imperfection by falling short and revealing the need for someone greater. Adam, our father, failed. Moses, the greatest leader of Israel, failed. Abraham, a man of great faith, failed. Noah, who built an ark in the face of intense persecution and ridicule, failed time and time again. David, the greatest king that ever lived, failed. And God continues to use them like he continues to use us. We are all imperfect, yet Jesus has chosen to entrust us with the building of his kingdom. He gave the keys to it to Peter, a man who denied him three times. There will be moments of failure in our life. All of us at some point will let Jesus down. All of us will deny him. All of us will betray him. All of us in this room at some point in our life will do more harm to the gospel than good. Well, what do we do? Well, when you and I fail, when we do fail, and we will, if we are repentant, we have to commit to each other to walk together in restoration as Jesus did with Peter. If we are repentant, we have to commit to walk with each other in the, the grace that Jesus himself Has shown us. Now, the key here is repentance. Peter did not say to Jesus, in one hand, I'm not going to deny you ever again, and then go out and deny him again. No, his heart was broken over what he had done to Jesus. This man that he had loved, that he had invited into his inner circle, he was broken over that and made a commitment to never, ever, ever do that again. That's the essence of repentance. That you and I recognize how we have broken the heart of God and we commit to never, ever, ever do it again. Seeing the grace that God has given us and the love in his eyes, looking upon us as we have failed him, we say to him, never, ever again will I let that sin do to you what I'm seeing it do to you now. I will never be responsible for hurting the heart of God like that again. That is repentance. And that must be the first step on the path to restoration. If there is no repentance, and that's when church discipline comes in. If you offend the heart of God, if you willingly disobey, if you deny him and you cause harm to the gospel and his church, then church discipline will come your way. One person will come to you and say, "Hey, listen, you're being an idiot. You're not representing the gospel, well. you're not representing Jesus will. You are hurting the cause of Christ." If still no repentance, two of us will come. We'll take you out behind the woodshed, rough you up a little bit. I'm just kidding, in some cases. And then finally, if you're still not repentant, we'll show you the door. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? After all, we at the church want everybody to be in here, but at some point, we have to defend what it is that we stand for and hold true the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're living a lie, and you're hurting the cause of Christ, not helping the cause of Christ, then we as a church have a responsibility to defend the image of Christ. And the goal here is, if you had at one point had a relationship with Jesus, in the absence of fellowship with the body of Christ, you will feel the need to be back in fellowship with the body of Christ, and you will give up that sin... In favor of coming back and walking with the family of God. And once again being an asset to the gospel. And you will be restored. But you also have to be repentant. So the question is how long will it take you to be repentant? Will you be repentant upon the first encounter? Even before someone comes to you, will you be repentant? Because of how you know it affects the heart of God. Or will it take a little bit harsher journey to get you there? But if you are repentant, then we will commit to walk with you in restoration. This is why Monday nights are so important for us. So important for us because people need people to walk with them through these kinds of moments in their life. The problem so many of us have and sin so many of us have in moments like Peter's experience here is that we think that our denial of Jesus is too great for him to forgive and that's a lie from the enemy and so we hold on to these sins we hold on to these denials in secret because we think everyone around us is perfect God if they only knew what was in my heart they only knew what I had done they would reject me they would kick me out but I promise you, and many in this room can attest to this. If you come with a repentant heart and you say, this is how I have not honored God with my life, and I want to do better, then we will take that, we will look at you in the eye with love and say, let us help you walk through that. And How can we do that? Why do we do that? Because Jesus Christ did it for us. Shame on us if we don't show you the same kind of grace. That we ourselves have received. But all of that comes with an acknowledgement that all of us are imperfect people. And all of us need the grace of God. And all of us have failed him at one time or another. And look how Peter responds. Look how Peter responds to this gracious act of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Begin in verse 14. Read a little bit and then skip a little bit. Look how Peter responds. This is the beginning of Acts. Early church is being sent out now because the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. And remember, a man who, not four pages earlier in the Bible, denied Jesus to a little girl, look at how now, having been restored by Jesus, responds to people challenging the people of the early church. Beginning in verse four, 14 but peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them because people were ridiculing them saying they were drunk because of how overwhelmed they were with the spirit of god falling upon them men of judea and all who dwell in jerusalem pretty big crowd right at one moment he's afraid of a little girl now he's addressing every man in jerusalem and judea let this be known to you and give ear to my words For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. This is what he uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. For From the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Go down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, anointed one, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, because he'd experienced it before, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, your God, calls to himself With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Peter, having experienced the grace of God, commits to boldly share that grace with others who also respond. Peter, having experienced the grace of God, commits to boldly share that grace with others who also respond. And this is how the gospel works. This is how it works. Those who experience God's grace implore others to do the same. Having experienced this overwhelming grace of God, to know how much we've offended God to the core of his being, and yet him looking upon us with love and saying, come to me, my child, I forgive you and restore you. Having experienced that and knowing the joy that comes and walking in full fellowship with God, we then go implore others to experience the same grace and joy. And this is why, my friends, as the church today, we must run, run, run from legalism and towards grace. Only in understanding and experiencing the grace of God will we passionately proclaim it. If we think we can earn it or we think we deserve it, we will never, ever proclaim it like it needs to be proclaimed. But If you and I recognize, if we can ever get a clear conception of how dirty we are, how terrible we are because of our sin in light of a holy, righteous God. For him to look down upon us with anything else other than judgment and wrath should cause us with every part of our being to stand up and proclaim to as many men as possible that Jesus Christ is the hope of the nations. All of us in here must realize that we have betrayed Christ in greater ways than Peter has. We have failed in greater ways. We have denied Him in greater ways. And yet, Christ has pursued us. Hear me. He didn't just make Himself available. One day if they realize, they'll come to me. One day when they get it, they'll come to me. No. He didn't just make Himself available He pursued us. He came after us. He called to us. He restored us. And now we must feed his sheep. Peter, embarrassed, probably couldn't even look at him while they were eating breakfast that morning after Jesus was raised. So upset by how he had betrayed this man who had loved him so completely. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't wait for Peter to come to him and apologize. He says, Simon, you come to me. Do you love me? Of course I do. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Of course I love you. And that's exactly what he did to us. We didn't even know how we had offended him. We didn't know how dead we were. And yet he came after us. Opened our eyes. Said, do you love me? The crazy thing, the only reason we can say, yes, we love you, is because of how he first loved us. Reminds me a little bit of a story in the Old Testament how a king acted graciously to someone that he didn't have to. A story about a guy named Mephibosheth. Anybody out there looking for baby names? <laughs> Heather and Jace. Mephibosheth Kellington. I don't even know what you go for short there. Mephib. Meph. Sounds a little bit too much like a drug, so we'll move on from that. Wonderful story about graciousness in 2 Samuel 9. What we see here in 2 Samuel 9 is that David has become king, and he is honoring now a promise. That he has made to his best friend, Jonathan, who saved David by alerting him to the fact that Jonathan's dad, King Saul, was coming after David to kill him. Because God had taken off his anointing of Saul as king and had placed it upon David. And so David implores his best Jonathan implores his best friend, David, that at some point, once all this has passed and Saul no longer is in the picture in 1st Samuel 20:15 to not hold what Saul has done against him to his entire family to forgive this debt. And so look how David responds to the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, who could have threatened politically David's claim to the kingdom. David said, verse 1 of chapter 9, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to him, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, son of Amiel at Ladabar." Then King David sent and brought him from the son of Amiel at Ladabar." Then King David, I already read that. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now think about this for a second. Typically in this day, whenever a new regime came on the scene, the first thing they did was wipe out anybody from the old regime. So imagine Mephibosheth's thought process as he receives word that the king, the one who just replaced his crazy grandfather, wants to see him. you got to expect that he's thinking, I'm about to die. I'm about to die. I'm about to lose my life. David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now, did Mephibosheth do anything to deserve this grace from David? No. David is showing him kindness because of an act made by his best friend, Jonathan. So Mephibosheth is receiving grace because of the act of an individual. I will restore you. All the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. End of the chapter, verse 13, the Bible says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, not even banished. And he always ate at the king's table. Pretty incredible story and a clear picture of grace leading to restoration. David could have killed Mephibosheth to secure his own place. Yet, because of a promise he made, he showed grace to Mephibosheth. David receives grace and then shows grace. He restores this boy when he could have destroyed him. The Lord works the same way. The Lord chooses to restore us when he could have destroyed us. He has every right, every right to throw judgment and wrath upon us. Yet he has shown us mercy and grace. You and I were children of wrath. Now we are children of God. And so the question for us is how will we we respond to those who offend us? How will we respond? That's a really weird combination of syllables. How will we respond? Disputes in the church. Disputes in our life. Heated arguments, betrayals, how will we respond? Will we respond in grace? Or will we respond in anger? Hear me, confrontation has to happen. But it cannot be about revenge. If your confrontation is about avenging how someone has offended you, then you have no business going to that individual yet. The confrontation has to be about restoration. Remember what Paul writes in Ephesians? Be angry and do not sin. What's he saying there to us? It's okay to be angry. It's a human response to be angry when someone betrays you, when someone offends you, and someone stabs you in the back. But the difference is how you and I respond. By not letting it become sin. You have to deal with it. You have to confront it. But the whole point is to restore that relationship. Not make them feel as bad as they made you feel. That's the example of Christ. And that's what makes us different. That's what Jesus means when he says turn the other cheek. Someone pokes you in one eye. Let him poke you in the other. Something like that. If he offends you, you get it. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. It's in there. But so many of what so many of the things that you and I do in the church, it's not about restoration. It's about revenge. And that's not healthy or Christ-like. And it's not what Christ has established. As the way that you and I are to act and love each other. You and I have to extend the same kind of grace that we have been shown. Think about Jesus on the cross for a second. As he is hanging up there. He looks at these people, the very people who chose to take him over that other guy, Barabbas. Same people who beat him beyond recognition. Who nailed him on the cross. And what does he say? Say, Does he say, God, you know those things you're going to allow people to create in the future? Those tanks and nuclear bombs? How about you drop some on them right now? Boom. Take that, Jerusalem. You didn't know it was coming. What are these metal things? Metal elephants walking through the, the thing. Oh well, my God, what are these? It's like, you know, the old Godzilla things. It's like Jerusalem, like the Japanese people running through them. Okay, so... Really bad dub of sound there. Freaking out because they don't know what to do. Because Jesus took revenge. He could have said, bam, you're all gone. But what does he do? He looks upon them with compassion and grace and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You and I say, Father, destroy them because they knew exactly what they were doing, and they deserve every bit of it. What perspective that Christ shows us, and what understanding of depravity? Remember, we've said it the past couple of weeks, you and I do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with powers and principalities. And of course, the enemy uses flesh, Flesh and humans as agents of those things. We have to remember the same perspective that Christ had. And we have to understand depravity and the spiritual warfare that we are in the way that he did. What grace Jesus exhibits by being able to proclaim that statement. While being put to death by their very hands. Some questions for you tonight. Who do you need to extend grace to? Some of you in here have felt betrayed. Some of you have been angry and have sinned as a result of it. Some of you have been deceived. But in far, far inferior ways to the way that Christ was. And yet you hold it as a badge of honor Tonight, I wonder if revenge could be put aside and restoration could be taken up. It's important for us because the people outside of the church are going to know that we are his by how we love each other. How we show grace to one another. Perhaps someone in this room, I pray you wouldn't leave tonight until you address that. Perhaps it's someone you need to call. When you leave here at night and say, hey, listen, I've been holding this against you for so long. It's not honoring Christ. And it's not showing you the grace I was showing you. Say, well, Jared, they haven't even, even asked for forgiveness, they don't even know what they did. So, look at the example of Jesus. He pursued you. Now, will you go pursue them? Then, having experienced God's grace, are you proclaiming it boldly to others? I've come to wonder if the reason that so many of us aren't passionate about proclaiming the grace that we have received in Christ Jesus is because So many of us don't really understand it. Yeah, I prayed a prayer when I was six. but How bad could I have really been? We just walk in the same patterns that we've learned having grown up in church. We feel like we're good people. But we don't understand grace. And guys, if you understood grace... I don't know how you couldn't passionately proclaim it and live it to the people around you. So here's my question. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Then you gotta feed a sheep. got to proclaim it you got to stand up acts 2 style and proclaim what jesus christ has done for you and who knows how many will be drawn to jesus who knows how many want to bathe in the grace of jesus christ as a result of your faithfulness to live out that grace and proclaim it. As the band comes back up, I want us to spend some time in reflection. First of all, you've got to recognize you're a failure. You're imperfect. The beautiful news of the gospel is that that's the point. And that your perfection isn't a requirement because you get to receive Jesus's as an act of grace on your behalf. Do you understand your sin? Do you understand how it offends the Lord? And do you deserve, you do you understand what you deserve as a result of that sin? Close your eyes for a second.